2: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Psychology Today blogger and professor Peg O'Connor, Ph.D. Her book is Life on the Rocks. This is her new book, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. Now, Life on the Rocks is the first book to address addiction and recovery from a Western philosophical perspective, offering a powerful set of tools sharpened over millennia. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Peg. Oh, thanks so much for
3: having me on, Catherine. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, okay, you're, uh, and I want to mention the name of your Psychology Today blog, Philosophy Stirred, Not Shaken. I like that title. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, all references to martinis are. Exactly, essential. and I'm a martini drinker. That's why I like the title. Um, but Peg, okay, so this is like a really different, especially if I'm a social worker and I've dealt a lot with uh, addiction and, uh, you know, with all kinds of addictions, but mm-hmm. um, this is kind of, this is a new approach. I mean, sort of approaching addiction from a philosophical perspective. Can you explain to us exactly what that means?
3: Oh, happy to do so. And in some ways, philosophy has been addressing addiction, or not addiction because that's a contemporary way of understanding, but has been addressing these sorts of issues from the get-go. So I'm trained as a philosopher. My training is in moral philosophy in particular. And I've really come to believe that philosophy is the original help uh, or source of self-help, So you had Socrates back in 399 BCE. He's been found guilty of corrupting the youth of Athens, and he's in the penalty phase for his sentence. And what he said is that the unexamined life is not worth living. Philosophy has always been an activity that has been centered on examining examining one's life, his or her character, the care of her soul. And an important part of the care of my soul is the care that I take of the relationships that I have with others, both as family members and as members of communities and for Plato and Aristotle, members of a state. So Addiction is simultaneously a problem of an individual. It's we individuals who are addicted... But it is also both a public health and a public policy question, which philosophy always has been concerned with the relationship between individuals and individuals and communities. So, in many ways, it's a no-brainer that philosophy should be part of the discussions about addiction, because addiction, in many ways, is a set of questions about the meaning of life or suffering or meaninglessness. And that is the bread and butter of philosophy.
2: Peg, hey, all right. So you're describing in your book. Um, you talk about, I mean, your own story being illustrative. So talk about that because you yourself, which is not strictly written from an academic perspective, you have your own personal story and your own personal story of addiction and how this this whole philosophy fits into your uh, your recovery.
3: Yes, so I am both a recovering alcoholic and a philosopher and I've always maintained that philosophy helped me to get and then stay sober in large part because I felt as if I had this incredible set of concepts and frameworks for asking really crucial questions about how I am in the world and who I want to be. And during my most active using times, I found that I didn't necessarily recognize myself at all. I found that, oh my gosh, I was doing things that seemed completely unforgivable or so shameful. And philosophy always gave me ways to try to look at myself And C, see what? See that A, I had certain kinds of choices and freedom about how I was living my life, and B, to think about the kinds of responsibilities that I have, responsibilities both for what I've done, but just as importantly, responsibilities for what I might do or who I might become. I mean, that responsibility is as much forward-looking as backward-looking.
2: And but you're an ad- and I'm going to interrupt you because you yep. are an academic, uh, you, know, you have a PhD, we're talking about philosophy, does this fit into like the ordinary or the lay person, let's say lay person, uh, who has an addiction problem, because did this this sort of I'm calling it not exactly a revelation, but at what point did you realize this? Let's say you have an addiction? Let's start back with your addiction with
3: when you first so realized. With, 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 or my, accepted. with my own addiction, sure. Yeah, because I, I think that's I really helpful. The, I'm the poster person for someone who started drinking young. So drinking by around the time I turned 14. And for a whole bunch of reasons and some things I don't fully understand myself. I just started drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. I was one of those um, blackout pass-out drinkers by the time I was 16. By the time I went off to college, I was a full-blown alcoholic. And like most people struggling with addiction, I did every possible quiz that I could, you know, if you answered yes to two or more of these questions. And I was, you know, regularly scoring nine out of ten and things like that. And um, I was lucky in some ways that I was somewhat high-functioning, but I'm also just completely aware of the ways that my addiction, my use of alcohol, and that was always my first love, although I loved other things too, but alcohol was my true love, like Caroline Knapp talks about in her memoir, Drinking a Love Story. I'm aware that that became the axis around which so many of my other activities in life turned. I changed my friend group. I wasn't doing as well in school. I wouldn't do certain things because, oh, my gosh, would I be able to get to the liquor store. And part of the the interesting thing here was for so long I kept my addiction – separate from my work as a professional philosopher. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling. At the same time... How did you do
2: that in high school, though? You say you started when you were 14, so obviously I when you were underage. Under uh, you what?
3: You know, I don't... I don't know how I got through high school. I almost got kicked out of high school. I mean, so this was in the early 80s, and in the early 80s, we weren't as good at looking at kids and saying, that kid really has a problem. That kid needs some kind of treatment or something like that. And... I would regularly show up intoxicated at school functions. One time I got way too lippy though. I went to a a Catholic school and I had wonderful, I had many wonderful nuns and priests. And one nun was wearing lay people clothing because it was after, you know, Vatican II when they can do that. And I was in a blackout drunk. But the last thing I remember saying before I passed out was saying to a nun, and your clothes are ugly too. I mean, I, I, I was a lippy little thing. And, I honestly think no one quite knew what to do with me, in part because we didn't have the framework of thinking about adolescent addiction like we do now and so I think in in many ways, I got by um, high school wasn't i I was not the brightest bulb in the box, my intellectual star did not beam brightly, but I did well enough to to get through and when I got to college I, you know for whatever reasons. I, I loved studying philosophy and I finally felt like, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm maybe not the dumbest person in the universe and I can actually do pretty well. At the same time, I was still drinking like a fish. I described my undergraduate as a time when I both fell in love with philosophy and I nearly drank myself to death. And I think a lot of addicts sort of have that same incredible tension in their lives. They may love something and feel good about something and at the same time, they are sort of knocking the legs out from everything that would give them support. Mm-hmm. So and you're that's what sabotaging
2: I did. your own efforts at the same... Yes.
3: Yes. And that self-sabotage is so typical of, of those of us who struggle with addiction. I mean, we say we want one thing and we'll go to heaven and earth to, to make that happen. At the same time, we are constantly undermining and going against ourselves. And, and I think that dynamic of you know, is that a kind of self-deception? I both really want certain things and I realize I can't be drinking if I want them and I keep drinking in the ways I do. I mean, I think that self-deception is, a more complicated sense of self-deception is really typical of a lot of people struggling with addiction.
2: Peg, did you have people surrounding you, like family or friends, who were saying, "Hey, what are you doing?" I mean, you talk about self-sabotaging, or did you come from a family where addiction was a problem, alcoholism was a problem, or was this just you were? This is something very different from your your own family, family of origin. Let's say, Um, who was your? What was your social group?
3: Sure. I, I mean, my my social group was, you know, friends who also liked to party, but then I would party and drink way more than them. So, you know, my when I look back at my high school social life, I had different groups of friends that I would change depending upon whether I was on the outs with one group because, well, I had gotten so drunk and then I did something really stupid or someone had to take care of me or you know, the police come and they break up a party and you've got to stuff peg into the bathtub so that she's not seen by the cops because she's passed out. I mean, I was an incredible burden on my friends. And it's only much later in life, as I work with college students now, and and I hear about how they're taking care of each other and how frightened they are, what a burden I was on my friends. So I kept losing friends, circles of friends. And I think I did what a lot of um, addicts do. We befriend people who use or drink like we do, and we always make sure that there's someone who does it more than we do so that we can always compare ourselves and say, well, you know, at least I don't look like Catherine. I mean, oh, yep. look what she's doing. And then at some point you realize you are someone else's point of comparison. Uh-huh. And I'm sure right, I was.
2: I'd so say now we've, you've been drinking since you were 14 years old. Now you're in college still drinking, as you say, Mm self-sabotaging. So at what point did you finally realize, hey, you know, this has got to stop, this is affecting, you know, my choices, uh, you know, and you started really thinking about or examining your own life. Did Mm -hmm. that happen in college or afterwards? No, it it
3: happened in college, and it happened in part, I was one of those people who, when I started drinking, I could not stop. But if I stopped, I could stay stopped until I started up again. So I was a college athlete, uh, tennis and squash player, and I decided that, okay, I, I can't drink when I'm in season. And I would just kind of bootstrap myself along and not drink while I was in season. And I would tell myself, oh, if I can stop, then I don't have a problem. And I've stopped, therefore I don't have a problem, which is a nice bit of you know logic, good rule and logic that I learned. Except I never took into account that, oh my gosh, when I started up again, I started up again. So, you know, in in part, it was that both knowing that I was an alcoholic and trying to create any kind of argument that I wasn't an alcoholic because people drank worse than I did or that I could stop for extended periods of time. And so I I would stop and then I'd get going again. And my sobering up was completely by accident. I never intentionally set out to say, okay, Peg, you need to, you need to knock this behavior off. Um, I had a very bad car accident a couple of months after I graduated from college. I hadn't been drinking, but I was on my way out, and I would have been a few hours later, and I got T-boned by a pizza delivery person who didn't have his headlights on and zoomed through an intersection. And you know, I, I had a severe concussion. It's it's funny. I've been thinking about this a long time now. So I'm in the hospital. I wake up and my head is in the CT scan, and I think, "Oh my God, what is my head doing in a clothes dryer?" You know how loud they are. Then I'm out cold again, and then you know I, I come to, and I remember being offered various kinds of pain relievers because I, I had a lot of, I had some broken bones, I had a lot of muscle bruising. I was in a lot of pain, and I remember when the nurse came by, and to me it seemed like the um, the the lovely display of free samples at grocery stores mm-hmm. of of pain relievers and i had this distinct thought of oh my god betty ford here i come i knew that if i started taking pain relievers i knew that what i would be taking them not just to relieve the pain and at that point i declined the pain relievers and about 2 weeks later i realized my gosh i haven't had a drink i haven't really even felt like drinking maybe i'll see how long this can go And so that was back in 1987, and I'm still going. As I think about it now, and I've been reading a lot. So it was the pizza
2: delivery boy who ultimately saved your life, I
3: guess. (laughs) Yeah, or you know, dying almost—you know, dying saved me. Something like that, or that's why I say I sobered up by by accident. Um, What I now believe is that, given the severity of the concussion I had, I think I was too depressed to even want to drink. Because that would have taken effort. So, I mean, I think it's this paradoxical bit of irony that I was too depressed to drink after that accident. And then at that point, I had some time under my belt. And it was only later, as I said, when I decided to see, well, how long, how long could I go with this? I'm going to treat it as an experiment. And in some ways, I think I still do treat it as an experiment It's certainly not something I take for granted, although I've come to realize I need to do different things in order to maintain a good sobriety or have good recovery that you know one has to be really responsive and willing to change what one's doing in order to live the way one wants to live but that's not unique to addiction at all.
2: Peg, you sound the whole I mean it's really interesting because to me your whole the way you Think maybe is sort of like a paradox when it comes to your addiction because you sound so controlled and you were able, you were able to like compartmentalize. For instance, when you were you know playing sports, you didn't mm-hmm. drink, and then you're like once you stop, then you you know you start drinking again. I mean, you seem to have a lot of control, but at the same time,
3: no control. So it's, mm-hmm. it's,
2: and, it's and,
3: and I think yeah, I think that's the right way to put it. I mean, there is something paradoxical in the kind of control and lack of control that certainly is characteristic of addiction. And, and, and I wonder whether it's characteristic of, of other sort of ways of being in the world. I mean, sort of here's the philosopher in me saying, you know, I understand addiction as a as a way of being in the world, or as a, as a way of life. It's an orientation that provides certain kinds of limiting conditions that um, help affect the kind of meaning I can make and the activities that I can do. And you know, where I am very controlled is I control my my physical and social environments so that I'm not constantly surrounded by temptation. Because all these studies on willpower show, and I'm not saying that my sobriety is a matter of willpower at all, but I think it's it's it's, it's there's a piece in there. But I just don't want to be around situations or people where, you know, I look at somebody drinking and I start thinking, oh, well, gosh, doesn't that look fun? Or... You know I never want to find out what would happen if I start to drink again because there are good reasons for me to believe well, before I would start and stop and then really start, and I know friends who have gone out after decades sober, so for me, I choose not to call that question yeah and, and I guess
2: there are just there are different points of view i mean i 've had different uh, guests on the show, for instance, some who are able to control their drinking and go back to drinking Mm -hmm. and drink one or two drinks or social drinking or whatever you want to call it, and it works for them. But the same thing doesn't work for everybody, obviously, is what you're saying.
3: Um, Yep, And, and I agree with that. And I think that's also really interesting as the DSM, so the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, has made substance use disorders on a spectrum where we now talk about mild and moderate and severe. And I think a lot of people who are on the moderate end can turn the ship around and maybe then someday you know drink or use normally and healthfully not in those more uh, what the ways that come with greater physical psychological and and social costs
2: well in talking about your book um, you know I I know you went to AA and and that you say one of the AA's mottos is keep it simple but addicts are usually anything but simple which Mm -hmm. is true (laughs) So, uh, and, 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 you know, many people, you know, swear by AA, others, I guess, don't. So,
3: um, and I want to be clear, I don't pledge allegiance to any particular program of recovery. And actually I was sober for 19 years before I tried AA again. I tried it as a college student and was not ready for it. And then 19 years later, it was one of those times where I thought, you know, I'm going to try this. I'm a different person now, and, you know, maybe there's something there for me. So that program works for so many people, and I am so grateful for that. And other people really struggle with it for all kinds of very good reasons.
2: Right. So Your book addresses recovery in a slightly different way than many books do. So, it's, you know, we only we don't have too much time left, so I want to, Let's talk specifically about your book, um, You know, Life on the Rocks: Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. How does your whole, and you've given a, a great synopsis of, of, of your addiction and, and recovery, how does that fit into the book and why you wrote the book? Um, and you do say that, and we've kind of been talking about this, that your book does not really advance any one particular form or program of recovery, okay? Mm-hmm. So that makes it unique and different. Um, so let, let's... Talk specifically about the book and what it does address in terms of addiction and recovery.
3: So, as as I said, I think that certain forms of self-deception are pretty characteristic of addiction. And, you know, the more well-known forms of denial, you know, no, 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 I don't have a problem, or minimization, oh, my use isn't as bad as so-and-so's, um, and... Um, irrationalization. well, I only drink because, you know, my boss is just out of control. Those are interesting forms of self-deception, but I talk about ones that actually have their home in particular philosophers. So procrastination, I think, is a form of self-deception, and it's certainly one that I've seen in a lot of people I know who are struggling with, okay, I know I have a problem and I should get help, and I'll get help when or I'll get help tomorrow, and they keep sort of putting it off by one day. And during that time, they can be really busy too. Oh, I want to do all my research on the best treatment program for me, and I want to make sure. And you just keep putting all these things in play when you say, I really want to go to treatment, and still you put all these obstacles in the way. And the philosopher Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, writing in the mid-1800s, described procrastination like this. He said... It's like sewing without having tied a knot on the thread, so you keep pulling through and making all the motions of sewing, and yet there are no practical effects
2: and and I think to to see procrast- where do you think that com- where do you think that comes from
3: where the what the procrastination comes the from the procrastination, yeah. Um, Kierkegaard describes it as a gap between knowing what I should do and willing, i.e. actually putting into action what I should do. That gap is there. And what happens with procrastination is what might start out as a tiny, tiny little gap becomes a much bigger gap, becomes a chasm that may become almost impossible to surmount, well, probably individually but without the help of friends for example. So there's there's a there's a gap there that Kierkegaard always found really interesting. And I and I do think it's really interesting because sometimes we talk about well I know that I should do that and someone might say yeah but do you know know it? I mean different ways of knowing that I have a problem, that that my drug or alcohol use has veered into the You know, deeply troubling um, or really harmful consequences. I mean, questions about self-knowledge like that, deeply philosophical. So, one of the important things that I talk about is there's a model of self-knowledge that comes out of philosophy. It's the model of introspection. You know, this comes from the enlightenment, the idea that I've got privileged access to everything that is going on inside of me. And my favorite philosopher, Wittgenstein, says, how would you even know what you were looking at if you're only sort of looking internally You always need some kind of external concepts or frameworks or consideration. And one of the things that I argue in this book that's crucial is that any self-knowledge I have oftentimes comes from borrowing the knowledge that friends have of me. So addiction oftentimes works to isolate, to cut off people from their friends, and I argue that Good recovery involves having others in your life who can reflect back to you, so you can actually have more accurate self-knowledge. And so that how do you do that? Can...
2: Let's say, let's say you are, in terms of what you're describing, procrastinating and kind mm-hmm. of, and I think isolating yourself. How yes. do you start making those connections that you'll allow those people to connect with you to mm-hmm. reflect on what you're doing, and then yourself allowing that to think about it, to be reflective, um, to. Allow some introspection like what's Mm -hmm. the process how do you do that there
3: there are there are all kinds of process for that. So one of the things that, that I've always known and that I've always appreciated is that one of the ways that I can begin to have more compassion or self-understanding is by hearing experiences like my own reflected in someone else's stories. I think there's a, that's the reason why memoirs in addiction literature, in the addiction genre, sell so very well because people are craving Reading stories, hearing about other people, in part in order to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one or I'm not crazy or nutty, that other people have gone through the same thing or felt the same things that I have done. I I think it's wonderful that there are so many good memoirs out there. I think the Internet has been really useful in making more of those stories available. That's one of the reasons why I think AA has been so successful for so many people, is that it helps people move from that isolated, I'm so unique, into, wow, I'm one of these people, and there's great relief in knowing I'm not unique in these kinds of ways, because those kinds of ways are oftentimes really shame-based I I would agree, and and I think it doesn't only
2: apply... It, yeah, it doesn't just apply to addiction or addiction and recovery. It applies, I think, just across the board in terms of oh, if you gosh, have an illness yeah. or so whatever mm-hmm. your situation happens to yeah. be. But I find, that, and it's interesting that you mentioned memoirs, because I have exactly that reaction to it. I love reading memoirs and mm-hmm. uh, and memoirs about people who have similar kinds of either problems that I have or family situations, and I find that very, very helpful, so... Um, I guess you can start with that and then you can really then begin to surround yourself real people <laughs> who you allow in your life uh mm-hmm. and to be yeah. So your book is it for and I just want to make this clear because it, it's not simply for those who have you don't necessarily have to be well educated or have a college degree or a masters or a oh, PhD. Oh gosh,
3: no, no. no. And it makes me so sad what has happened to philosophy, the way it's become this really abstract, only for the ivory tower. I kicked off this book, I got interested, because someone in an AA meeting asked me the following question, am I the same self now that I'm not drinking as I was when I was drinking? That is such a deeply philosophical question. Addicts, I think, tend to be very philosophical Maybe, without recognizing it as such, and maybe without having the you know kind of education that would be you know give you an undergraduate or graduate degree in it, but when you ask questions about responsibility, when you ask questions about self identity, when you ask questions about the role of friends in your life, when you ask questions about how do I make meaning and sense of things that i 've done in my life, how do i make um, how do I make commitments to other people? I'm going to come back to those are all the bread and butter of philosophy because they're about examining yourself not just individually but in relation to others. That's yeah. philosophy. Philosophy yeah. is an activity, it's an orientation in the world that requires no degree. It just requires. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because you know it the, you
2: can be, as you're saying, introspective, philosophical, but you don't necessarily have to be intellectual. And I think we often confuse. all of that, you know, thinking that if I'm going to be able to be, if I'm going to be philosophical, then I have to be some kind of an intellect, and
3: you don't have to. Oh, dear Um, gosh, no, no. And and I write this book as an alcoholic first. I mean, sort of, that's one of the, that's the first thing I say in the book, actually. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm also a philosopher. You know, We have
2: about a minute left okay. so Life on the Rocks Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery Peg O'Connor um, Professor Professor of Philosophy and Gender, Women and Sexuality Studies at Gustav Adolphus College in Minnesota um, we can buy your book where and uh, what uh, website can we go to uh, to get more information about your book and about you
3: the Amazon.com website uh, for, the, for the book is quite good. Barnes & Noble, of course, your local independent bookseller. I would hope that they would have it. And my blog on psychologytoday.com, so Peg O'Connor, psychologytoday.com, that has a whole bunch of new pieces on it. I try to post there pretty regularly, and those are probably the best places to start.
2: Great. It's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much
3: for being on the show.
2: And uh, I recommend the book, Life on the Rocks, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. Um, We'll have to have you back again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Catherine, for this interview and all that you do. Great. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We will be back in a minute.
0: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation.
2: We're back. I'm Katherine Zoch, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zoch Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Huffington Post columnist and lecturer, Carlin McDonald. Uh, her new book is The Every Woman's Guide to Equality, How Achieving Real Equality Will Change Women's Lives Forever. Uh, Carlin, a uh, passionate and outspoken proponent of social justice and equality, working in fields considered non-traditional for women, has personally seen and been on the receiving end of inappropriate and unequal behavior. Uh, in two of the industries in which she worked, male workers made sexual harassment and discrimination an art form, so armed with an M.A. in public policy and her experience. In the corporate, community activist, and nonprofits world, she became frustrated at the ongoing negativity towards women by politicians and the media, uh, hence her new book. She is also the founder of Change in Our Lifetime, pushing men and women alike to make a strong commitment to real change for, women's, for women through hard work, vigilance, and commitment that women's capabilities are limitless. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Carlin.
4: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
2: Yep. Well, Every Woman's Guide to Equality, we're still fighting for equality. We've been fighting and, you know, I I was one of the, I I always say in the forefront, I don't know if it's in the forefront, but, you know, uh, in the 60s and in the 70s and in the 80s, and uh, why haven't we achieved it yet? Uh, You know, what's wrong? We're still... I, I, we're still we don't't we don't, you know we're still fighting to have uh, a president a uh, female president of the United States of America. We just haven 't been able or don 't seem to be able to get there in terms of true equality for women. Why not
4: you know I want to say that it always feels like we 're still at the front. You know what I mean It felt like that to my mother. It feels like that today. The front never seems to go away we 're always fighting that battle. I think that women have become really disillusioned, and listening to the media and our politicians and the lack of respect that we hear almost all the time, it's kind of degrading and depressing, and it really does work on your psyche. It, it makes you think that nobody really cares, and if you listen to it long enough, you start to believe that you're not a valuable person. That coupled with, uh, you know, traditional women don't speak up, don't speak out roles, and uh, it's like a perfect storm, you know? Well, the word that comes up to me is frustration. It's
2: frustration. You know, uh, know, I feel like, okay, we've achieved this. You know, we've achieved, you know, we we make almost as much as men do in the workplace, but not quite. Uh, And then as you say, we hear all of these, the, the stuff on television and in the media um, that's really disparaging towards women. And, and then my whole sense of frustration starts all over again. Um, where's the social justice and where's the equality for women? We've been fighting for it for mm, over, well, you I, you know, over. Ever. Ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't really come up with a number. for Forever. Right, exactly. Ever. So what do you tell us in the book? How do we do it? How can we achieve it?
4: I think women really have to be proactive. I think women have to step up in in any way they can. You know, people say to me, well, I can't talk like you. I'm not, you know, mouthy like you. And I said, well, there's always a way to do something. Um, If you are shopping at a store that doesn't treat women with respect or that the commercials or advertisement that you see is not, you know, respectful of women. Uh, Like during the Super Bowl, sometimes we see commercials that are very, you know, focused on, representing a woman in a different way, a more sexual way, and that's really going after a male audience, what makes it easy for me not to shop there. And maybe my, you know, $50 or $100 doesn't matter, but maybe 50000 or $5 million will matter. You know, uh, I think that women need to be proactive about shopping and voting is so important, especially right now. If you listen to candidates and they talk, uh, you know, negatively about women, I think that that's a big message to what you're going to get down the road. And um, I think people really need to pay attention in this election because it's it's very critical for women to go out and vote, to exercise their almost 51% of the population power. We have such power in numbers, yet it doesn't seem to me like we're taking advantage of that at all.
2: Well, I think we have powers and numbers, but I think the real issue and one of the issues I think that you address, we don't feel like we have the power. We don't, we don't sort of take on that power. It's not, we don't internalize that power, so we don't see ourselves as powerful. And, and I see even with some of these politicians, they'll say something negative about women or disparaging, and I, I find maybe a lot of women, and I, I, I've uh, that I've talked to will kind of just say, well, you know, he, they don't really mean it. That's just, you know, that's politics as usual, And but they do really mean it, and you have to take it seriously. Um, so I think that, well, I think those are two things. Um, we, and I think you say that, you know, that we do have, our capabilities are limitless, but we don't internalize that. We don't really feel that, so then we don't act on it. And all different areas, as you've described. What other areas? I mean, yes, we have the power. I think women have the... You talk about buying power and money, don't we? Women, in terms of uh, retail and, 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 and purchasing food and all of those kinds of things, we, have, we, we are the big um, biggest consumers, more so than men.
4: Yes, we are. We have power of the purse, so to speak. I, I love something I learned in graduate school. It's called voting with your feet. And... Um... It's you know shopping, it's spending, it's paying attention to what companies are supportive of women, um, what companies are not. And when I talk about supportive of women, you know I, we can we can talk about uh, women's health is very important. If if somebody is not um, supportive of their female employees having appropriate access to health care, they're definitely not a company that should be getting any women's money. And until we start to do that, I, I always post on. I posted on Land's End this week about the controversy with Gloria Steinem being in the, their catalog. And uh, I just, it, it's such, so stupid to me with so much that's happening in this world that, uh, that they would allow themselves to get sidetracked. A company would allow themselves to get sidetracked by politics. The Komen Foundation did the same thing a few years ago about women's breast screening dollars. And that hurts women. The issue with abortion is something that we're going to argue about. Probably forever. And um, even if abortion became illegal, there would be people fighting to have it made legal. If it stays legal, there will be people fighting to, to make it illegal. While we're doing that, we are hurting women who use, for example, Planned Parenthood for other health care needs. Some of these women never see a doctor except when they go to Planned Parenthood for health care, for heart disease, for, you know, Stroke for so many other things besides abortion, and I, I really am trying to separate that out because that's a very important area for women to get active in, to be passionate about when they go to their doctors, to know what's wrong with them, to not get brushed off, to be aware of the symptoms of heart attack. So
2: why do we? So why do we let? So why do we let? Carlin, why do we let these male, it seems to me, these politicians, as I'm listening to them or watching them on television, when they're talking about Planned Parenthood, for instance, emphasizing pro-choice or anti-choice and not emphasizing the health care benefits that women get from being able to avail themselves to the services of Planned Parenthood. We don't seem to get out there and talk
4: about that.
2: Uh, Women don't seem to do
4: yeah. I think our media, I, I just, I'm so disgusted by the media in this country, I can't even tell you. I, you know, I'm a news junkie, but I cannot turn the TV on to watch the news at all. I have to read it on the Internet so I can pick and choose what message I receive. And the, the, the big sexy story is about, you know, federal money and abortion, which you were talking about 40 years since uh, the Hyde oh, Amendment. You know, yeah. So it's not, It's and no one is saying, hey, that's not true, or that's not Federal money isn't being used to pay for abortion. Nobody, nobody refutes that. So the message that people are getting out there, women are getting, especially, and men, if they're not paying attention to the news or not reading about what's happening, is that their tax dollars are being used to fund abortion. That's the message they're getting. And if they're not in support of abortion or they're not sure about it, then immediately they'll be offended by the fact that their tax money is being used. And that, I call that the abortion bomb conversation, that when you're talking about women's health care, someone tosses the abortion bomb into the conversation and nothing else happens.
3: Yeah. And well, I would agree
2: I, with you. What do you think it will do for our country if we have a woman as president? I mean, do you think that some of what we've been talking about today will change because you listen to some of these younger women, uh, women in their 20s, uh, women even younger, in, in, uh, who are who say it doesn't matter whether we have a woman as president, because it, obviously the person has to be qualified and, and have substance, et cetera, which I agree with, but that it doesn't matter whether it's a woman or a man. Do you agree with that, Do you think, or do you think that that would make an enormous change in terms of women and equality?
4: I think um, having a woman president would be a radical concept for this country, would it make a big change for women i don 't know. I think if a little girl looks up on a podium and sees a woman speaking to her from the highest you know point, like the Supreme Court justice like Justice Ginsburg. I mean when you look and see yourself up there as a child, your opportunities for dreaming about what your future could be are limitless. I think it 's awesome to see so many people involved in the campaigns i'm thrilled that you know i don't want to say the younger generation but the next generation is active and passionate what i'm not happy about seeing is the fact that they that uh bernie sanders campaign with all the good that it's bringing up but all the questions that are being raised has allowed itself to become somewhat misogynistic now people are going to disagree with me but listen when you reduce hillary clinton to to the uh, uterus that, you know, (laughs) a uterus doesn't qualify you to be president. Hillary Clinton is so much more than a uterus, and it really offended me as a woman who's been fighting for equality my whole life. And my mother, a World War II Army nurse who couldn't get a credit card in 1970 without my father signing for her, it offends me that we can't look at her amazing body of work and say, I don't like what she stands for. She's extremely qualified to be president of this country, but I don't like her politics. And here's why I'm voting for Bernie Sanders. That's what I'd like to hear. Every time I say this to all my friends, I haven't, you know, come right out and said who I'm voting for, but I like to hear what everyone else says, and I always say to them, tell me about Bernie without using Hillary. If you can explain Bernie to me in a way that doesn't use Hillary as a comparison, you've got my vote. And you know what? Nobody has been able to so far. Okay, well, then you've answered so, my question.
2: <laughs> what about, uh, okay, here's another one. Well, you know, I know you do a lot of workshops and, and keynotes uh, on women's equality and leadership and development, et cetera, um, and to a lot of different national and local organizations, and, and one of the colleges, universities. We've talked a little bit about uh, uh, people who fall into those demographics, but uh, one of the things that I have here that you talk to uh, the military, United States Marine Corps, for instance. What kind of response do you get from, from the, the the United States Marine Corps in terms of women and equality and being able to achieve that.
4: That is such an interesting place. Um, I was very honored to be able to present a workshop for a women in technology group within the Marine Corps, and it was both civilians and um, uh, military. So I, I was a little nervous about going. The day I got there, they told me what I, some of the things I could not talk about And I thought, okay, because those are some topics that I thought would be beneficial extremely for, you know, the Marine Corps uh, with the highest rate of, you know, sexual assault of any of the military. And, um, but it was awesome to be talking to them about equality and what that meant to them and why equality is important for women. There was one woman in the workshop who came up to me at the break and she said, you know, I don't agree with anything that you're saying. And I said, I I appreciate that. I, I don't expect everyone to agree with me. I just want them to hear what I'm saying. And um, she, I said to her, but just because you don't believe in equality, shouldn't preclude me from having equality. And she said, I agree with that. And that's really the message, uh, you know, that 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 I took away from all of that. We don't have to agree on everything, but my point is, this woman
2: did not believe in equality. She didn't no,
4: believe she that did she not.
2: herself should. She's not no. equal. To, and she did she, not
4: see that her 25 years in the United States Marine Corps as a civilian. And everything that she's gone through wasn't discrimination. When everybody else in the workshop talked about their experiences. I wouldn't qualify them as discrimination because I don't want to, to, you know, use that broad brush with the military. I mean, there's a lot of issues that need to get resolved with the military when it comes to how they deal with sexual assault, both with men and women, but also how they treat women. Um, I think some, some of that tide is going to be changing. You know, the new commandant at West Point is a female you're starting to see women more visible. I, you know, I, I talk about uh, the mentality of violence, and you're dealing with people who are in the military, so they're on alert. You're dealing, for example, also, uh, the police officers, uh, they have a very high rate, 40% of all uh, police officer families have had some experience with domestic violence. You're talking about the National Football League and other sports. These are all people who are conditioned to be aggressive and go get it and whatever. And there has to be some way to take them down between their job and their home, because they're never turning off the adrenaline, you know? And think, um, well, you kind of the, touched on, I think, one of the things, and maybe we were talking
2: about uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, and little girls can look up and see that the person who's head of the free world is a woman. That's and identify with it, that makes a huge difference in how they feel about themselves. And isn't that true? Is that what you're saying? Like if you have a commandant in the in the military who, who's a woman or an admiral or a general, that sort of changes everything? It changes the picture? It begins to evolve that maybe we are equal? Um, uh, um,
4: if, it changes the picture of what the military looks like. It doesn't change behavior, though. I mean, you may, I remember, I don't remember what, I don't remember what branch, and so I'm going to have to look this up. But I, remember, I want to say it was the Air Force, but I don't want to, you know, indict them for, without being sure. But one of the military... We can say um, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. I yeah. think um, had a, a person that was put in as a, you know, who's going to be overseeing efforts to rein in sexual harassment. He himself was, uh, had to resign because of sexual harassment charges against him. And I thought, isn't it? Could it send? Could it say anything more than I could possibly dream? Here's the person in charge of sexual harassment in the military branch. He's, and he himself is guilty. So, and he was. It wasn't some, you know, uh, oh, I'm just saying something to make you lose your job. You know, it wasn't an allegation. It was legitimate. Um, but I think the military's got a long way to go. I think that women haven't always been welcome. Still aren't welcome. Uh, those two rangers that passed the. The Special Forces test, I think it was a SEAL test, um, were immediately, you know, they cheated, they gave them extra benefits, they helped them, and I'm thinking, why can't it just be that they passed? Isn't that great? Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, why can't it just be, why is it always about cheating? Why is it always that the woman got an extra benefit? What if she didn't? What if she was actually able to pass this test? Isn't that shocking to a man who thought all along that women are not, Equal, they're not the same, we don't belong together. And here you have somebody who's actually said, Hey, let me show you in a physical way that I'm as good as you. Yeah.
2: Well, I think people in power just generally don't want to give up their power, whoever they right. are, wherever they are, um, and that's always an issue. But uh, also, you, you're talking about getting back to the sexual harassment. I mean, you yourself, and I think I mentioned it in the beginning of the interview, you've worked in industries where you have yourself been subjected to sexual harassment and discrimination. Can you give us an example, like a personal example, your own example? Oh, my gosh.
4: Do we have all day? Um, <laughs> or give us two. Yeah, I'll give you, okay, well, one of the examples I talk about in the book was that um, I was working in a heavily contaminated area, and uh, I had to work in a field office. And uh, the day I went in, pictures what are we talking on the wall about of, of contamination. women, and I like to say that only in poses that only a gynecologist should know about. And It wasn't, you know, if I could say mainstream, you know, playboy or whatever. It wasn't, uh, you know, I'm putting quotes around that, mainstream pornography. It was hardcore. And uh, I said, hey, you know, uh, this, kid, I said, this is gross. Can you take it down? I really don't need to see this. And they were like, no, you've got to work here. So I uh, drove myself to a porno shop and went in and explained that I needed a magazine for a male friend of mine who was bashful about coming in that had the biggest member possible so I took the centerfold out of that magazine and I went into that office before anybody got there and I hung my centerfold on the wall over my desk and I can tell you this within 15 minutes of everybody showing up there were no centerfolds on the wall and I say this because I always say to people if we saw more pee pee in movies we would see less booby in movies Women are used to seeing themselves, and we're like, we get over it, even though it's, you know, right? But I, I guarantee you that if men saw men naked from the waist down all the time, they would not be so happy about going to the movies. I promise you that. Um, but, and then there were times when uh, we were talking to a, a whole group of workers, and they were going to be working in contaminated areas. And uh, one guy asked me, stood up in front of this whole group and asked me what it was going to do, this contaminant was going to do to his member. And I just said, okay, we're done. We're done. And I was done. I walked out and went on my way. The union rep came running after me and told me I couldn't leave. And I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to be treated with a lack of respect. And, you know, it, it was stupid. It was their loss. Um, they were trained eventually, worked in the contaminated area. But I, you know, behavior like that, uh, went on and on. There was lots of that. There was insidious discrimination within my own department. One of the guys in my department complained about me to my boss for a full year before he ever said a word to me. So I never had a chance to refute. I never had a chance to participate. Um, and it taught me so much about what not to do in working with people. So.
2: What kind of re- what kind of support did you get from other women within these companies that you were working with? Or
4: did you? Or were you just like a lone none. kind of... No, none? no. I went to somebody in my chain of command I had great respect for, and I kind of felt like he was my godfather because he did watch out for me. After one really horrible experience, I went to him. I, I was being harassed by a supervisor on one of the jobs, and he kept talking about how I needed to get my pipes cleaned out and how he was going to help me with his 13-inch member. And so finally I went in and I said, I don't, I don't know what to do. And they, he said, you've got three choices. You can take it and be quiet. You can go out there and give it as good or better than you're getting it. He said, or you can go file a complaint at Human Resources and you will win. He said, but you're never going to work here in this area. You'll be, again, so you decide. I decided to go back and give it as good and work better than I did. And, um, but then after that, I was considered a bitch. So you see, it's a, it's, it was a very double-edged sword. But I had a lot of people in the field who respected the fact that I was trying to keep them safe from contaminants because every time there was some kind of a safety meeting and they gave out a hat or a bag or a jacket, one showed up in my office every single time, and I never asked for them. It was their way of saying to me, we appreciate your commitment to us.
2: Okay, so you did your job and you did it well, and you were well-respected for that, so I guess that's one way of fighting back in a positive way. Uh, It is. We we have just a few minutes left, so... I, would you tell us change in our lifetime? You are the founder of Change in Our Lifetime. What is that? What?
4: Well, you... a Change in Our Lifetime is a nonprofit. Primary goal is to educate women and men about uh, in college and universities and high school. We're working on a curriculum for uh, middle school um, about history, women's history. Why our history is so young, fragile that we really need to pay attention and. You know, be the next caretaker, be the next tender of our history. Leadership development skills, how to be a good leader, how to be a good mentor. These are really important skills for women in college to know before they go out into the workforce or the nonprofit world. And um, change in our lifetime is exactly that. I would like to see change in my lifetime. So that was why I titled that. And uh, then I wrote the Every Woman's Guide to Equality because I just didn't feel that I could get my message out Enough about how important it is that women embrace equality, that we embrace, you know, what, what we earn and what we work for and what we deserve. And um, it's been very exciting.
2: Yeah, it's an exciting journey. Um, Carlin McDonald, Huffington Post columnist and lecturer and author of the Every Woman's Guide to Equality, How Achieving Real Equality Will Change Women's Lives Forever and also founder of Change in Our Lifetime. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much.
2: Uh, We're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Channel.